0: In this session, I want to look at uh, quite an important piece of research, not only about the Methogon of Methwai legend, but also about the general family of tales known as the Fairy Bride Tales. The paper that I'm going to be looking at is by someone called Juliet Wood, and Juliet Wood I think she might still work in Cardiff, I'm not sure. But she was in Cardiff University for a very long time and she might even still be there. I think she was even uh, head of the Folklore Society for a while. So, a very influential scholar in many ways. And the paper that we're going to look at really crystallises in many ways the modern attitude to folktales, which is in itself interesting. Uh, But we'll come to that in a bit. So just to take a quick look at how Juliet Wood presents the Mithagon Mithvai folk tale and in which context she sets it. Early on in the paper, she says about three dozen variants of the tale, that is the Fairy Bride tale, dating from the 10th to the 20th century are known. So some very early versions of the story. One of the earliest versions that we know of, Uh, is, of course, that recorded by Walter Mapp. Uh, Walter Mapp, of course, was writing roughly 800, 900 years ago. the tale, the fairy bride tale now, is part of a widely distributed supernatural legend tradition in which an otherworld woman marries a mortal, but eventually returns to her world, leaving him and their children. The tale is widespread, particularly in northern and western European countries, where the woman is sometimes in animal form, and the loss and recovery of her animal skin motivate her marriage and return. She is, of course, referring mainly to the Selkie traditions of Scotland and Scandinavia. Uh, The seal women, who would come out of the sea and their husbands would uh, either steal or take or would be given these women's seal skins thereby maintaining a degree of control over them and ensuring that they stay on dry land and stay uh, part of the family of course there is almost always some unfortunate event which results in the fairy bride the the selkie woman in this case Retrieving her skin and going back into uh, the seas. Of course, there is quite a modern and beautifully illustrated. Uh, animation film, uh, The Song of the Sea. It's true to the forms of traditional storytelling, not only in Ireland, but in the Celtic countries in general. Uh, Whoever wrote that film did a really, really excellent job of incorporating all of the different motifs and the underlying mythology, which, of course, resides in many of these folktales. But anyway, Song of the Sea, go and check it out. Brilliant film. Sometimes the fairy bride is a mermaid. And the possession of some object, such as an item of clothing, is the means by which she becomes subject to her human husband and eventually returns to her own world. In Wales, she appears in human form and her return is motivated by the violation of some taboo. Of course, in the Middha Mudvai folktale, it's these three blows, which aren't necessarily blows in the proper sense but they are infringements on her uh, physical person if you like even though they're very gentle touches some of them uh, in some stories of course they are actual blows in other stories they are blows from iron and of course there are some versions of this story uh, which don't have any blows in whatsoever i would for example consider the llin folktale. folk tale which I haven't discussed in this series yet, but which I have discussed at various times and various courses. So some of you may know what I'm talking about. The Llyn Barvog story, I would consider part of the same general tradition of fairy bride legends, although it is very different and the woman in it isn't a bride, but it's very, very similar uh, in many other ways to the fairy bride legends. Um, So I would consider that to be part of the, the same tradition, but that doesn't include a blow. In Wales too, the numbers of surviving variants are lower than elsewhere and mainly from printed sources. So Juliet Wood here is essentially referring to the the scarcity of uh, folklore and folktale material collected in Wales in comparison to other places in Europe, if not across the world. Um, there is a scarcity of sources on Welsh folklore here. And I think as Juliet Wood herself points out... Uh, relatively late collecting and the relatively early shift to industrialization are factors which do not foster the survival of this kind of complex supernatural tale. Um, I don't think it's contentious to say that it's really the Industrial Revolution which uh, precipitates the breakdown of many of the folk traditions in Britain. And because, of course, the Industrial Revolution essentially begins here, it happens here um, almost before anywhere else, we have a much earlier breakdown in the cultural fabric which these folktales exist within uh, and survive upon. So by the time we have a, a flourishing working class, That is, by the time many of the land workers uh, and labourers have uh, essentially been forced through poverty, in many instances, into the industrialising towns and cities. By that quite early period in the 18th century in Britain, we find that these folk traditions are already starting to degrade. And the second problem, of course, is that scholarship in Britain was late to catch on. scholarship in Wales in particular was late to catch on. That might be because of the general poverty of the country at the time in that we didn't have many Welsh scholars coming through the academic system and therefore there weren't many people with the necessary academic training to carry out these these research projects of essentially collecting and collating and comparing and categorising folk tales. Uh, as we find in other places. It's only really um, in the last half of the 19th century that we really get um, uh, what I would describe as a flourishing community of folklorists in Wales. And that's left us uh, uh, quite poor compared to other countries in terms of our folklore sources. But we do have enough. And as Juliet Wood says, nevertheless, the geographical distribution of even such a restricted number of variants indicates the importance of the tradition and, while absolute conclusions are not possible, a great deal more besides. So this is one of the interesting features of the Fairy Bride story in that it is quite widely distributed across Wales. We find many, many instances of the story up in uh, northwest Wales, in Snowdonia, for example. But we find versions all over the place. Not just lakes, but also some rivers also have uh, supernatural associations. So very interesting in that sense that we have clear evidence for uh, a widespread folktale, which in my eyes corresponds to a widespread belief. But we'll come on to the problems with... Uh, saying that folktales necessarily give us evidence of beliefs. Um, I think they do, but we'll talk through the problems of making that claim in a minute now, Uh, because I think folks like uh, Juliet Wood aren't that comfortable with claims of that nature. But anyway, I digress. The subset, which comprises the Welsh fairy bride stories, has a number of unique features. The most striking is that the Welsh fairy brides are always human in contrast to the seal, or selkie, found in Scotland and Scandinavia, or the swan in some Germanic variants. In most Irish variants, the girl is a mermaid. Very interesting. The woman's consent is gained by various means. Capture, learning her name, Offering her the right kind of bread, which is, of course, the Physicians of Mudvay story. But always the prospective wife imposes a condition. Its nature shows some regional variation. In North Wales, the taboo involves touching with iron. In South, it is when he gives her three blows. Although I would say that's a little bit more nuanced. Because even with the three blows, horses are often part of those three blows always wealth and prosperity are dependent on the wife so this natural abundance once again and after her departure her cattle follow her back into the lake and in one case her children as well so the natural abundance uh, and fruition of the land which is embodied in the fairy bride returns with her to Anoven to the other world and this for me is one of the clearest suggestions that these stories are evoking a mythology and a mythology that we can trace back to pretty ancient times i believe that these stories are a later 19th century version of a much older mythology Uh, which is very gender-specific in the way that it uh, apportions certain powers and responsibilities to the men and certain powers and responsibilities to the women, where you have, I've said this many times, but uh, a patriarchy, which is uh, a warrior elite, or which at least um, lays claim to a territory and defines and protects and safeguards a territory, and... The women are embodiments of abundance and fruition and wealth and prosperity and all of the goodness that the earth gives to uh, the patriarchy who take care of the more material side of things. So we've got this matriarchy-patriarchy situation going on between the two, and I would say that that's a very ancient dynamic. Uh, And I'm often baffled why scholars find it difficult to make this connection, but Another interesting point in Juliet Wood's description, which is something that we have touched on, uh, often the fairy bride returns to visit the children and expresses her affection for them in rhyme. Sometimes the fairy heritage is beneficial. The physicians of Mudvai gained magic medical knowledge from a book given to them by their mother. And of course, in the Glasunas story, Taliesin is the product of this union between Fairy Bride and Mortal Man. So in general, we could say that special people, people with particular talents or people with particular abilities that are out of the ordinary, were considered perhaps to be the children of these special unions, or at least born of a family with this type of ancestry. If that does correspond to a belief, that's quite remarkable when you think about it, because it means that people for long ages were very proud of their fairy blood. The of murthavai lineage of doctors lasted up until 1776, I believe, uh, when the last of that lineage died and was buried on Pendungur, I think, in South Wales. So quite a long lineage of doctors many of whom, if not all of them, may have claimed descent from a fairy mother. I think it's worth paying attention to that folktale motif and trying to work through whether it is actually a reflection of a belief that may have lasted up until the 19th century. Juliet Wood also picks up on What John Rhys uh, describes in his collection of Celtic folklore, just in the last sentence there, however, the fairy ancestry can carry a stigma. And Rhys, John Rhys, describes in his uh, two-volume Celtic folklore, fights which follow this accusation. Uh, Juliet Wood is referring there to John Rhys' account of the Pellings in Slamberis, in the Slamberis area. People who claim descent from uh, a fairy bride and uh, a mortal farmer. And for long periods, the family being very proud of this, but then as time goes by... By the 19th century, we find people making fun of them before it. So this belief going out of favour. And, you know, we find signs of this type of belief being frowned upon and ridiculed uh, and even being harassed, as John Trudeau describes here. We can imagine why. Even though it was a a very long-lasting belief, it didn't fit into the the Christian or the non-conformist Methodist description uh, of the world uh, that's provided by Christianity. As I've discussed many times, we can see how this type of native belief would be propagandised against by the Christian church. And here we have just people generally just thinking, you know, these folks are mad, claiming they're from fairies, we're going to make fun of them. All of that being said, for me, one of the most interesting things about Juliet Wood's paper is the type of interpretation that she offers. Now, for those of you who've sat on my courses and who have listened to these uh, sessions uh, over the years, you'll understand that I'm interested in mythology. I'm interested in looking at how stories and comparing stories, the stories that clearly belong to traditions, let's say, can uh, reveal uh, ancient attitudes and beliefs. They can tell us a great deal about what, how people saw the world in the past. And the use of story in the past was, I, I would say, vastly different to how we use story now. So even though enjoyment and entertainment is clearly part of the storytelling tradition, teaching and revealing morality and giving guidance on how to be the, in the world is also very important. In the modern scholarship that looks at folklore, what we really find is a sociological approach to interpretation. And what I mean by that, we can find on this next slide. So this is again from Juliet Wood's paper. If you just look at that first uh, schematic, essentially Juliet Wood uh, describes the different structures in the story in different ways. So for Juliet Wood, there is a realistic mode where we have a man uh, who courts a woman who sets conditions and there is a marriage and the result of that marriage is children and they have independent lives but they're affected by the parents. Now for Juliet Wood, that is uh, an obvious sociological description of human community yeah we can all agree to that that's clearly what's going on here but juliet wood believes that the story the fairy bride story is actually a fantastical rendering of that sociological condition so on the bottom half of the the schematic we see that there is a fabulous mode so there is a mortal man who gains power and then the lake has contact with the other world. And then there is a supernatural bride, and there are taboos uh, attached with violating the supernatural bride, and this results in supernatural cattle, and in the end, because the taboos are broken, the supernatural cattle and all the wealth return to the other world. What we find there is an attempt to provide a sociological interpretation for a supernatural story, or to give a realistic account for a fabulous series of events. I think there is some value in this, absolutely. I mean, this is kind of where, you know, modern scholarship has been for, for quite a while now, doing this kind of thing. And it is useful. And, you know, Juliet Wood herself is cautious and says, reducing a tale to this kind of scheme... Obscures the variety inherent in these narratives and overemphasizes the didactic elements. That is, overemphasizes perhaps the underlying moral of the tale or overemphasizes an attempt to give an educational account of society through the story. Yeah, fair enough. I get that. You know, agree there. Clearly, the main motivation for telling these tales is the joy of the tale itself. In large part, but I don't fully agree. I think there's a lot more to these traditions than just entertainment. But yeah, I get where she's coming from. And yes, we can give these sociological accounts of what's happening in the stories. We can interpret the events of the story through the lens of sociology. Of course we can. And Juliet Wood goes on to to do more of this type of interpretation. Contact between the worlds involving a supernatural woman and a supernatural animal results in marriage and and prosperity for a human being, and the loss of both supernatural woman and cattle results in the disruption of the marriage and the loss, or partial loss, of prosperity. In this context, the ebb and flow of narrative pattern produces a situation which accurately reflects the uncertainties of actual cultural experience the actual social uh, setting now. So again, Juliet Wood sees that the disrupting of the fairy bride's marriage is in some ways a reflection of the actual lived experience, which of course is never supernatural and is only ever purely sociological, the actual lived experience of common folk, that... The suggestion being that they tell these stories, these fantastical stories, to rationalise in an entertaining way their actual lived experience. But I don't fully agree with that. I don't totally buy that. The narrative may also reflect problems inherent in the fact that marriage, involving as it does different kin groups, creates an uneasy alliance in which the wife is caught in an in-between state. So, essentially, the in between state that uh, a mortal woman would find herself in, in these types of kin groups, yeah, uh, she being the bridge between one family and another, she therefore finds herself in a liminal state, in an in between state. And that this might be one way of rationalizing what these stories mean. So, clearly, we have folk tales that can be described in sociological terms, we can say that the events of the story correspond to the real lived experience of women, in that they often find that when their marriages are disrupted, that the family becomes poorer, and that they are also in a liminal in-between space, because they're often the bridging points between two, uh, two families, between two kin groups. Yeah, absolutely, That sociological description of these stories absolutely holds true. It does make sense. There is a way of interpreting the stories in that way. But for me, this is kind of the low-hanging fruit in interpretation. Of course, the stories that we make for ourselves are going to echo and reveal uh, our different lived experiences, But as well as our lived experiences being made up of sociological experiences, as in we live in these different social patterns, we also live in the context of belief and of mythology and of having magical experiences and not necessarily uh, rationalising those experiences as purely sociological events, but those experiences correspond to belief, they correspond to a spirituality. So, as well as there being sociological accounts, we could also, for example, make anthropological interpretation of these stories. Now, sociology in many ways is the description of the internal dynamics of groups, of societies. Anthropology, on the other hand, is really a description of individual experience. And anthropologists usually want to embed themselves within cultures so that they can catch a glimpse of these individual experiences. Now, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for us to make a purely anthropological assessment of uh, this folktale because we don't have access to these communities anymore, because they're historical communities that have passed away hundreds of years ago. So we can't go and situate ourselves in those communities. We can't be in that cultural context and observe how individuals behave and respond in those contexts. So we can't make a purely anthropological assessment of the story. But we could look at a whole range of these stories as ethnography, as the data that an anthropologist would use. So we can kind of make an anthropological assessment or an anthropological interpretation. But for me, if we if we really want to do a good job of that, we also have to look at these stories through the lens of mythology, through the lens of belief, through the lens of people's relationships to the supernatural through their sense of the sacred, through their attitudes to how mortals should engage with the supernatural, but also what are the underlying values and concepts and philosophies and metaphysics? What is the world view that comes through these stories? Instead of us looking at the sociological pattern that's expressed in the tale, what is the individual belief that's expressed in the tale? Well, are these fairy bride stories the result of women in particular and also men in, you know, relating to them, but women in particular feeling that there is a part of themselves which is not human, but which instead derives from the wild, abundant, natural world, that they are creatures of a wild land, creatures of the sea, creatures of lakes, creatures of rivers, and that that part of them needs to be incorporated into the most important relationship they're going to have, i.e. with a spouse, someone who's going to have children with them. If so, if these stories are the result of some women in particular feeling like that's part of their reality, then surely that's something really important for us to pick up on. Surely that tells us a great deal about the folk culture of not only Wales, but many other parts of the world also. What have we lost over time as many of these folk cultures have been whitewashed with Christianity, have been ignored, have been forgotten about? How many of these types of beliefs have disappeared because... Learned, middle-class, literate people in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries refused to take the beliefs of illiterate people seriously. But I think there's something really important there. I think there's something uh, that, that we should pay attention to because these could be the, rem- the remnants of real lived experiences of actual women and of actual men. And although we can say that, yes, there is a symbolic quality to these tales, yes, there is a symbolic understanding presented, that is, for me, quite an an obvious understanding, that being that uh, some members of the human family have supernatural connections, and those supernatural connections need to be respected, and if they're not respected, then uh, the whole family can go out of whack and out of balance, and prosperity and abundance is lost. And I can well imagine many women trying to teach their children and perhaps even their spouses um, about this spiritual reality through these types of story. But more than that, more than these stories simply being metaphorical, more than these stories simply being a rationalisation of a lived experience that they actually correspond to people's actual beliefs and actual perceptions of their position in the world. That some women did believe that they belong to the water and that they came from the water and that their, their spirit comes into the mortal realm from the waters. And because of that, they do bring abundance with them. That because of that, they are the embodiment of the land. And their counterparts, the men in that relationship, Uh, are their consorts in that respect so it's a very different sense of marriage that we have there yeah very different sense of the underlying relationship between uh, a man and a woman and their children there i would say that that's just as valid an interpretation as any sociological interpretation is It's not as easy to make that interpretation because we have to do a lot of guesswork. There's no actual evidence of any woman actually believing that her source was in the water. But I don't find that hard to believe. I just think of the modern culture of pagans, neo-pagans, druids, all kinds of people Uh, with lots of different beliefs, some of them are very similar to the beliefs that we find in these folktales.